Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hi listeners, Benjamin here, coming to you once again from the South London basement. It's our final Coronapod of the year, and when Noah and I sat down to discuss what we should cover, we thought it would be a good time to take stock and look back at how far science has come. Isn't that right, Noah? Yeah, indeed. But so much has happened that it's really hard to know where to start, so we turn to the most reliable of archives, the scientific literature. Um, throughout 2020, researchers have been publishing their findings on preprints, in journals, on blogs, and reading those publications all the way through has been our special guest for this final Coronapod segment, Nature's Research Highlights Editor, Tracy Watson. Hi, Tracy. Hello. That's right. I scan a lot of abstracts of both published papers and preprints, which is where a lot of the action is these days. Yes, and certainly a lot of action this year in the coronavirus sphere. I mean, let's get right to it. Let's maybe skip back to the early days of what turned out to be the pandemic. And uh, that was back in in January 2020. Absolutely. So in mid-January, two papers, two landmark papers were published in the scientific literature, one in the New England Journal of Medicine and one in the Lancet. And they came out on the same day. And they show an amazing amount of information about this virus even though scientists had had their hands on it just for a couple of weeks. One set of authors isolated the virus, cultured it, and even imaged it. So less than a month after people started getting sick, you have electron microscope images of this virus with its little coronavirus spikes all around it. They identified it as a new virus and even started to get a handle on the genome and show that it was related to SARS, the coronavirus that caused an outbreak a couple years ago. The other team that published the same day looked at 40 patients and painted a clinical picture of the disease that would come to be known as COVID-19. And even at that early stage, they had picked up on the cytokine storm that afflicts patients who get severely ill. So it's kind of an amazing amount of research very, very early on. I have to say, in the position we're in now at the end of the year after reporting on this for the whole year, it's really kind of almost bizarre to think back to the time when, you know, we knew really very, very little about this virus. And yet, right at the beginning, huge amounts of information started being gathered really, really quickly. And then, you know, as you suggest, sort of foreshadowing things like the cytokine storm, it kind of highlights how much we've learned since. Absolutely. Now, when they first picked up these pneumonia cases in Wuhan, they didn't know whether it was a new virus. They didn't know whether it was spread between people. There was even the thought that it didn't spread from human to human, which, of course, turned out to be very, very wrong. And that initial thinking, that initial suspicion 
unfortunately delayed some of the measures that might have otherwise been put in place to stop its spread. And one of the things that reflects the newness of this virus is that the name kept changing until finally it settled on SARS-CoV-2 for the name of the virus and COVID-19 for the disease. But I think a marker of this pandemic is just how much has been learned. The pace of discovery has been so much faster than it was for SARS. Of course. And some of those early papers as well even looked at how the virus could have been infecting the body as well. Just two weeks after those early reports, there were two genome papers out both in nature, again, both on the same day, the 3rd of February. And they gave us a treasure trove of information about the genetics of this virus. And one of them reported that SARS-CoV-2 uses the same receptor to invade cells that the original SARS virus does, the ACE2 receptor, it's called. And unfortunately for us, that receptor is found in tissues throughout the body, which may account for some of its very widespread clinical effects. We also learned from those initial genome papers that the closest relative to SARS-CoV-2 is a bat virus isolated from a bat in China. That gives us some clues about where to go looking for this virus. And right now, there's a World Health Organization team doing an investigation into where this virus came from, how it made its leap into humans, whether there's an intermediate host. It's a kind of a needle in a haystack hunt but they're going to do their best to track as much information as possible about this pathogen to hopefully prevent future outbreaks like this. But yeah, there was a ton of genetic information available very early on. The path to providing that information to the world wasn't always smooth. It's pretty clear that there were some missteps along the way by various parties that kept the genome from being revealed as early as it might have. I remember at the time discussing this and when it might be revealed and so on, and then asking the questions, what does this teach us? What can that help us with? And then as time has gone on, we've sort of filled in those details a little bit more from that sort of base level that the genome, the sort of fundamental thing you can learn about the virus in particular. And that includes things like how it's transmitted, which was another a really big discussion throughout the whole of 2020. How is this virus transmitted? Is it in aerosols? Is it in droplets? And then also, can it be transmitted when you have an asymptomatic case? Can you even have an asymptomatic case? I mean, these are all questions that eventually did come out in the literature throughout the year. Yeah, there was so little known about how it passed from person to person. And you didn't know whether opening your mail could give you the virus, which led to lots of people quarantining or wiping down their mail and their groceries. And we've now learned that surface transmission, what is called fomites, you know, little specks of virus on surfaces are not a big pathway. It's a pathway. You should still wash your hands. But it doesn't seem to be a significant pathway. And there have been various studies swabbing surfaces in towns and so forth looking for virus. And they find a little bit in various places, but not a ton. And the epidemiology and the genomics and other studies all point to two forms of transmission. One is through respiratory droplets, which are the bigger particles that you expel when you cough or sneeze, which tend not to travel very far. And then the second category are the aerosols that you breathe out, even when you sing or talk or laugh, and that can travel farther and that can linger in the air. And I think there's still a little bit of uncertainty about the relative contribution of each of those sources, but it's pretty clear that respiratory droplets are a big deal and aerosols make a contribution. 
It's also pretty clear that people who don't seem at all sick can make you sick. And there was a paper quite early on in mid-April published in Nature Medicine that provided a rather unsettling glimpse at this dynamic. It reported that nearly 50% of transmission was what they called pre-symptomatic, before symptom onset. They got to this number by swabbing a bunch of people and following the course of their infectiousness over time, and also by studying people who had infected each other and looking at the dynamics, the timelines of those infections. And that study has since come in for criticism, and people have raised questions about some of its methodology. But there have also been other follow-up studies that confirm that that was basically right, that infectiousness can be quite high right before you show symptoms and right as you're starting to show symptoms. And there's also a fair amount of transmission from people who will never get sick. That's asymptomatic transmission. And the current numbers are about maybe 20%, 25% of transmission is asymptomatic. Yeah, there was one paper in particular about research in Iceland, which did you know a lot of genomics in a relatively small population to investigate this asymptomatic transmission, right? Yes, there was. Iceland is in the fortunate position of being an island, of being relatively homogeneous genetically, and of having an absolutely crackerjack genomics institute at their disposal. And that genomics institute turned basically all of its attention to SARS-CoV-2 when the outbreak began. And they've sequenced practically every virus that infected every Icelander since the very beginning. So they've been able to track their epidemic in a way that almost no place else has. And they did find a very high level of asymptomatic transmission. Now, I should caution that the percentage of your transmission that's asymptomatic and presymptomatic is going to depend in a huge way on the measures that the authorities take to clamp down on transmission. You know, the more you kind of sequester people, the more presymptomatic transmission there will be. In fact, there was a recent science paper showing that in a Chinese province that instituted a lockdown very early, the lockdown actually drove up transmission within households because people were staying home and infecting their loved ones instead of being out on the street, infecting people on the subway and in the office. So those kinds of measures can bias the amount of presymptomatic and asymptomatic transmission. And I think that that speaks to some of the other really big debates, I suppose you could say in the political sphere, perhaps not quite as debated in the scientific sphere that have gone on throughout 2020 surrounding lockdowns, if that's an appropriate way to respond, or surrounding things like face masks, should you, should you not wear a face mask? And all of these have also been played out in the scientific literature. I think maybe face masks first, it might be worth talking about. So back in April, again, there was the first papers that came out that suggested that face masks were going to help. Yes, there was a lovely paper again in Nature Medicine. The scientists had people infected with various viruses step into a little booth and breathe into a tube that looked a little bit like an old-fashioned gramophone horn. They had to sit in there for quite a long while, unfortunately for them. And some of them wore masks, and some of them didn't. And then the researchers measured what came out. And they found that masking tended to reduce the detectability of coronaviruses. Now, they weren't looking for SARS-CoV-2, because this study began way before the pandemic. But they were looking for the seasonal coronaviruses that cause the common cold. And there's, you know, pretty good reason to think that the behavior of those is going to be the same. 
And they found, you know, the masking does seem to help. Now, it was a very, very small study with a very low number of people infected with coronavirus, but it was a good kind of initial indicator. Yeah, maybe you should think about wearing a mask. And there have been other studies since then that add support to that idea. And I think each individual study is not super impressive. There's nothing that absolutely nails the case shut in the way a very large randomized controlled trial of, say, a vaccine would do. But if you put them all together, if you look at the studies of transmission, where people, you know, test face masks in machines, and then you look at some of the big epidemiological studies where they look at transmission in places that mask and places that don't, if you put that all together, there's a quite good case for masking. And it's unfortunate that's been hijacked by political leaders, as it has in a really big way here in the United States. It remains to be seen whether anything can change people's minds. But I think for now, it's certainly prudent to mask up and for authorities to suggest the same. Um, lockdowns, the debate has also been vitriolic. The science is quite a lot clearer with lockdowns than with masks, I would say. There are very good studies showing that lockdowns work. They have come from countries all over the world. They use epidemiology and modeling to show that after you have a lockdown, viral transmission really sinks. And those data date back to the early days, say May, for example. And there's also been modeling work to show that when you lift a lockdown, what a surprise, the virus rebounds. That work also dates back to the spring. And it was a real kind of kick in the guts, actually, to see those results and see that if we lifted the restrictions that we were all living under at the time, we could expect a big spike. You almost didn't want to believe it when you saw those modeling results. Unfortunately, we all know viscerally now that those results were correct. At the time, the authors were hoping that there could be kind of tightered lockdowns, you know, that you would lock down for just the right length of time and just the right restrictions that you could keep a rebound from happening. I think they probably knew that that was optimistic and we are now seeing the effects of what happens when you can't institute very refined lockdowns. Yeah, it's really difficult, right? Because I remember these papers coming out and there being just sort of like, oh, feeling around them because I guess there was a sort of a hope that that's not what the literature is going to say. But then even after the literature comes out and starts coming to these conclusions, there's still questions surrounding this, right? There's still people going, yeah, but what about the economic impact? Or yeah, what about the other impact? And so it doesn't seem to matter necessarily how clear the science is. And in this case, it does get quite clear because there's still always endless other you know, problems at play when it comes to having any kind of public health policy that impacts an entire population of people. I think we've seen with this pandemic a very stark reminder that science provides some information, but decisions about public policy have to be made based on values. You know, what is important to you? The science tells you what you can do to drive down the virus, but then you have to decide, is that what's important or are other things equally important or more important? Science can also tell you which measures work best, but some of those measures are very draconian. And I think scientists at this point are well aware that their pronouncements can cause a lot of distress and there's been nothing like this pandemic for creating backlash and outrage in response to scientific papers and scientific discoveries. It's been quite shocking and, and upsetting in some ways to see the vitriol unleashed on scientists who are trying to provide data. I think beyond that a little bit, 
there's also been other key places where the way that scientists publish papers, be that on preprints, be that wherever it is, you know, that link between publishing and policy has gotten so close that there have been other problems arise. And so you may be in a situation where science can advise and the policymakers can make policies. But during this pandemic, we've also seen situations where papers have been published. In some cases, peer-reviewed papers have been published and then had to be retracted. And yet there's policies that have come out of that as well. And there's one really good example of this, which I've actually written down in my notes as that Lancet paper, by which I mean an observational study talking about the efficacy of hydroxychloroquine. That's something that we've heard a lot throughout this pandemic, which it turns out was not a good study at all. But it did raise a lot of questions about how we base policy on research. Yeah, that was a really sordid saga. So in May, The Lancet published a paper supposedly based on something like 100,000 patients across six continents looking at hydroxychloroquine and related drugs and how well they treated COVID-19. And of course, hydroxychloroquine was at that point a white hot issue because several world leaders were espousing its use and even saying that they were taking it prophylactically. So this trial found no benefits from hydroxychloroquine and its relative chloroquine. And it even found that the drugs raised the risk of a pretty serious heart problem. And this was seized upon immediately by the opponents of the world leaders (laughs) who were espousing those drugs. And it was also seized upon by scientists running some of the trials who said, hey, look, you know, game over. We're going to stop this trial. It would be dangerous to continue giving our patients this drug and any way the data's in. It didn't take long for that to unravel. Scientists pretty quickly called this into question, and it was retracted very, very quickly. It turned out that the company that was responsible for gathering the patient data was a very small company with a very low profile and a very small staff. And they refused to share their data for outside review. And so the authors themselves, most of them, called for the paper to be retracted, and it was. After that, some of the trials of the drugs were restarted. Now, it turns out that the conclusions of that study were, were in fact, correct. Hydroxychloroquine does not offer any benefit, as far as we can see, and the World Health Organization has recommended against its use. So it's kind of a dead issue, but it did not proceed the way science is supposed to proceed. Well, if that's a result which was, let's say, you know, pulled from the record, there was one trial result that came out that really did raise a lot of hopes. And we, we talked about it on Coronapol as well. And that was, of course, dexamethasone. Yes, that's a completely different kettle of fish, thank goodness. So dexamethasone is a steroid. It's an anti-inflammatory drug. It's cheap. It's widely available. It's a pill, so it's easy to take. And a big trial showed that it is effective in treating people with severe or critical COVID-19. And so it was really the first drug to show efficacy against this disease. And it is now the standard of care around the world for treating patients of a certain profile. In fact, the whole group of drugs to which it belongs are now kind of recommended by the World Health Organization as treatments for for COVID. But, and there's almost always an asterisk with COVID, it's only indicated for a subset of patients And there is a worry that some people who take these drugs could actually get worse. So 
We're still slicing the salami very thinly when it comes to COVID treatments. We're still looking for something that really works well across a big population of patients across the whole spectrum of disease. Indeed. And I feel like if you speak to immunologists, many of them will say, we'll never find it. There isn't a magic bullet that's going to do that. But you know, there is combinations of therapies. There were trials published about remdesivir that although remdesivir didn't actually prevent severe illness, it did reduce hospital stays is what the result of that trial suggested. However, there have then been more research that's published after that that suggested that maybe that wasn't even the case. And actually remdesivir didn't have the same kind of impact that they thought it was going to have. There's also antibody cocktails, their big trial, but people don't have clear results of those yet. So you know, there's just a whole host of different treatments that are still undergoing trials none really seem to have met the bar of dexamethasone, which still hasn't set an especially high bar itself either. Yeah, I totally agree with you, Noah. It's helpful. It's good to have it, especially if you're really, really, really ill. But it's not going to be a game changer for the people who have moderate COVID. And lots of people are still getting very sick and lots of people are still dying. So we're still waiting for some of these other therapies to prove out. Remdesivir is kind of a sad case. There was early hope about it. But now the World Health Organization advises against its use because the WHO's own trial showed that it didn't work for curtailing mortality. So we're still looking for treatments. On the vaccine front, however, we're doing much, much better, which is a a huge relief. I think that's probably something that we should all smile and talk about the vaccines because, you know, at least there's a positive end of this. And there are vaccines which are being approved now that are being rolled out. People are actually starting to receive them now. That doesn't necessarily mean that we know everything about how immune one can be from COVID. That's still actually up in the air. But vaccines are around and they are being rolled out. Yes, thank goodness. So just yesterday... Here in the United States, the first person was given the Pfizer vaccine. The Food and Drug Administration here in the United States is expected to approve the Moderna vaccine either at the end of this week or perhaps early next week. So things are looking up on that front. The big question mark at this point is the Oxford-AstraZeneca vaccine. We had some trial results out about that last week, the first phase three clinical trial results to be published in a peer-reviewed journal. And those are, you know, kind of baffling. They accidentally gave a good portion of their subjects a smaller initial dose of the vaccine than they had intended to. You know, it's a two-dose regimen, and everyone was supposed to receive two equal doses, but a good portion of the subjects received a smaller first dose. And those people seem to actually have a better immune response and to be more protected from the disease than people who got the standard dosing regimen. And no one really knows what that means or what could explain it and whether it's real. Um, so they're going to redo some of their trial and they have to wait and see how it plays out. And they also have to wait and see how this plays out for older people because the Vaccine results they've released so far have been a little light on people 55 and over, and those are the people who you really want to protect. Tracy, can I ask you a question? As someone that spends a lot of time reading the literature, are you surprised that only one of these vaccines has so far published the results of its trials in a journal? You know, Because we've got another one, the Pfizer vaccine, which is now 
licensed and being given to people, but they haven't published their trial results in a peer-reviewed journal yet. Those aren't actually accessible for people to, to go through. Only the regulators have been able to go through and make those decisions, who, of course, we trust to make those decisions in the right way. I guess it isn't isn't surprising, Noah, because on the one hand, these are proprietary companies. You know, they're not doing this out of the goodness of their hearts. They are They are businesses. And they're not necessarily, you know, known for transparency. But on the other hand, this is such a monumental technology, so important to so many billions of people. It is a little surprising that they haven't yet come out and put something in public view. Now, they are still getting trial data, but, you know, since the data is far enough advanced to allow the vaccine to be given, I hope that they're going to be following up with some actual peer-reviewed papers very soon. That said, they have made a ton of information available to the FDA, which has made it available to the public, and that is a help. Tracy, as we come to the end of 2020 and, and look forward to 2021, you, of course, have, as you say, read hundreds of papers and hundreds of abstracts and hundreds of preprints. What what areas are you looking for papers in next year? What are some of the big questions that you're looking for, for data on, for information on? I think the number one thing I'd like to know is about immunity. How long does it last after you become ill with COVID, as you know, millions of people around the world have been? Are you protected for a long time? How vulnerable are you to reinfection? We have seen some cases of reinfection, but how common is that? We still don't really have a good idea. If I got sick in March, could I get sick again? in March of 2021. That would be really useful to know. (laughs) Um, And again, how long does the protection offered by the vaccines last? Those are really key questions. And another question for me that I hope we can get some clarity on is, what about the plight of the long haulers? Those really unfortunate cases of people who are ill months and months after infection. Are they going to improve? Is there anything we can do for them therapeutically? it would be really great to have some information about what those folks can expect and whether there's anything we can do to improve their condition. It strikes me that both of those things you'd like to know more about are things that you sort of necessarily need time to answer those questions. Absolutely. Although there are some studies that we could do a little more quickly. And I have a personal stake in this one, which is how much do children transmit the virus? How much do they get infected? And that I think we can learn without having to wait a long time. But it does take really intensive and potentially really invasive studies to get a handle on that. If you could get enough parents and kids and swab them often enough for a couple weeks, a couple months, in a place where there was a lot of virus, you could get a handle on how often kids get infected and on how often they transmit. That's a hard, hard, hard study to do. And there have been some small studies that take a crack at that. The CDC has done some. And the answers are kind of all over the map at this point. But I think there's probably a lot of parents out there like me who'd love to know the answer to that one. Well, thank you so much, Tracy. A really thorough retrospective of some of the big papers that have been published this year. It's worth flagging that you've been running a Research Highlights blog, which has given excellent, succinct summaries of the papers we've discussed today, and many more, of course. And I know you'll be continuing to do so into 2021. So I hope you'll join us again then to talk about what's been published. Tracy Watson, thanks for joining us. Thank you, Ben and Noah. It's been a pleasure. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. 
Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com.